The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. But true. If you need a Bible, we have some spread out all throughout the house underneath the seat in front of you or the seat you're sitting in. If you're grabbing one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 298 today. For everyone else, we're 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to be verses 8 through 12. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water and a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, Bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house, and I only have a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. Hey, good morning, Crosspoint. How are we doing? Good. Good to see you guys. Hey, real quick, did anybody else hear those kids up here just like shouting the name of Jesus. Man, that was fantastic. That just, that got me feeling good. So that was really cool this morning. Hey, I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, Before we jump in, you've probably heard the old joke, uh, even regardless of your background in church, your church friend or your grandma or your grandpa probably told you some variation of it, but it's called the parable of the drowning man. And I want to share that with you guys in case you haven't heard it. It goes like this. A storm descends on a small town, and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch, surrounded by water. By and by, one of the townsfolk comes up the street in a canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher. I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still, the waters rise. Now the preacher is up on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication, when another guy zips up in a motorboat. Come on, preacher, we need to get you out of here. The levee's going to break any minute. Once again, the preacher is unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the levee breaks, and the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above water. The preacher is up there, clinging to the cross, when a helicopter descends out of the clouds, and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone. Grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists that the Lord will deliver him. And predictably, he drowns. A pious man, the preacher goes to heaven. After a while, he gets an interview with God and he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head. What did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Let's let's pray over our time together real quick. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are, Lord. Thank you for every person that's walked into this room this morning. I ask that you would meet us exactly where we are. Lord, whatever it is that you want to do this morning, we invite you. We trust you. Lord, thank you for your provisions for us in the past and the ways that you're going to continue to provide for us moving forward. We give you this time, and it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
So there's multiple lessons uh, that you can draw from that parable, and uh, you've, you've probably heard it, like I said. Uh, one of the common lessons from that is that God will always provide the provision of God. And so before we jump into this strange but true story this morning, I want to kind of give you guys some context leading up to where we're at in this time in history. But things are a hot mess here in 1 Kings chapter 17, all throughout 1 Kings. Uh, The nation of Israel is divided north and south. Reign after reign after reign of kings is worse than the last uh, in the 70 years or so since King Solomon has, has died. Uh, and this prophet that we're going to talk about today, his name is Elijah, jumps into the picture and, and his time in ministry is full of chaos and uncertainty. Uh, we're, we're at kind of like a God war at this point. It's a near godless nation. You have Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, and then the false God Baal. Uh, and there's this God war going on. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, it says that there's only about 7,000 people that have not knelt to Baal at this point. And you want to talk about an ignorance towards God and his commands? The current king reigning, King Ahab, under his reign and rule, the city of Jericho has been rebuilt, even though it was strictly commanded to never be rebuilt. And so this is a bad dude. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, it says that he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. And so if you've read this, you kind of see that. It says, this king, worse than the last. Next king, worse than the last. And it just keeps going. And then it ends up with King Ahab provoked God more than any other king in the history of Israel. This is a bad dude at a bad time. And then Elijah pops in here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. I want to read that for you guys. It says, now Elijah, who is from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. And so Elijah pops in um, and he brings a drought, which in turn leads to a famine upon the land of Israel. And I love the way that Jesus says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. Not only was there a drought, but Jesus says that during this time the heavens were closed. The heavens were closed. That's a scary thought. And I love how Elijah just kind of jumps in here. We don't really get a lot of background on who this guy is. Just suddenly, just now Elijah. It says, now Elijah went and told King Ahab. A little side note here. There's nothing special or remarkable about Elijah. He doesn't have a crazy background, right? And, And God has chosen him for his ministry to advance his kingdom. And for us, what we need to recognize there, church, this is just a little side note. You don't have to have a crazy, remarkable background to be used by God. God uses ordinary people like you and I in this room every day to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. We have to recognize that. I don't have time to read through verses 2 through 7. We've got a lot to talk about today, but I encourage you to read through that. So I'm going to paraphrase that a bit for you. But Elijah tells King Ahab there's a drought, right? There's not going to be any rain for the next few years. And then God says, okay, now you need to go and hide yourself at this place called Kareth Brook. Um, and then while you're there, you're going to drink from the brook, and I've commanded the birds to feed you. Right? And so, that's, so Elijah goes, uh, and the question that kind of pops up is, why would Elijah need to hide himself? What, what's, what's that about? Well, it's because he's got a mark on his back after what he just happened. He just told the king that there's going to be a drought upon the land. So I'm sure this is probably not a safe time or a safe place for Elijah to be. But it's not just that. I want you guys to realize that 
When God begins a work, he will always provide until that work is finished. And so he protects Elijah. He hides Elijah in this place. Um, and, and I love Luke chapter 1, verse 37. It says, the word of God will never fail. God will never go back on his promises, on his commands. He will always follow through and we can rest, rest assured that he will do good on his promise. We need to know that. And, and that certainly sounds really inspiring and good. And then we think about this, this scene, right? It's kind of beautiful. Like Elijah's at this brook. He's drinking from it. The birds are coming every day to feed him. This is really cool when you think about it. Uh, until the brook dries up. And then there's no more water. And then we're like, okay, what's, what's going on? Because remember, there's a drop. And that water's eventually going to dry up. And I want to read verses 8 and 9 through you now. So this is where we're at. The brook has dried up. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. And we have to pause for a second because that verse alone, verse 9, there is so much in there for us to unpack. So much context that we get from that, right? God says, Go live in a foreign land. Not just go there. Go live there. Leave this place, go live in a foreign land, a foreign land that's full of enemies, people that probably hate you, that are out to get you, and I've instructed a widow to feed you. This is how God's going to provide for Elijah? I love how one commentator put it, uh, something that we need to understand about widows at this time. He says, widowhood was almost certainly a dead-end street. If one could choose, the ravens sounded more dependable. The ravens sounded more dependable than this provision that God says that he's going to carry out. And then I also love, I don't know if you've ever done this, but researched some of the names that the Bible gives, but this place, Kareth Brook, and this place called Zarephath, uh, the meanings of those names are really quite interesting. Kareth Brook means a place that would be cut off. Cut off from water, like what just happened. And then God commands Elijah to go to Zarephath, which was a place where they would refine metal. Uh, and so it's known as a place of refining. That's what Zarephath means. And I love when you put those two things together that Elijah would be taken from a place that was cut off and transplanted to a place of refining. And I love that when we think about that because this is exactly what's going to happen for Elijah, that his faith is going to be refined as he goes to this place. And then verse 10, the first three words here I love. We're going to pause here. So he went. I love that phrase so much. So he went. God gives this bewildering command to go to this foreign land, and Elijah moves and responds. So he went. Cross point, when I think about us here, each one of us in this room, each of you that serve on teams, each one of us that follow Jesus... When I think about a time one day that if there's going to be a record in God's history of his church and what they did, when it talks about Cross Point Church, I want it to say something like that. So they went. That even in a time of uncertainty, even in a time of fear, even in a time of political unsettlement, you fill in the blank, whatever you want to put there, that even when things were chaotic and uncertain, that we would take the word of God outside of these walls because we were never intended to sit inside of here idly. It was never intended to not be taken out there to Temecula, to this valley, here, there, and everywhere. Grant said it, our elder Grant said it, we're a kingdom outpost. We talk about that a lot. I don't know if you know things about outposts. That's not a place where you just sit around. You get ready and prepared and then you go and you deploy 
And that's what we are here at Crossport. I want us to be a church that's here, there, and everywhere. So they went. But so Elijah went, right? God calls him and he moves. And the first point that you can fill in on your note sheet here, I'm going to have some things for you, kind of leads us to our first point. It's that faith calls for action. Faith calls for action. The thing about faith is that God will always call us to move in some regard. Always. God will always call us to move in some regard. He is not our genie in a bottle, catering to our idleness as we sit around waiting for him to just give us everything that we ask for. That's not how God operates. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you feel like that was, but I need you to know today that that's not true. That's not the God that we serve. Faith calls for action. Uh, All throughout the story of Scripture, there's this underlying question that the heart of God seems to ask us, which is, do you trust me? Do you trust me, church? Do you trust me, Crosspoint? Do you trust me enough to move when I call you, when I command you to? And so God calls and Elijah moves, and then we pick up the story here in verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, Bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house, and I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. What now? If I'm Elijah, I'm taking a step back and having a one-on-one with God, like, God, you you said you were going to provide through this widow, right? Things don't seem like they're shaping up very well for Elijah at this moment. And I don't really know what's going through his head and what his expectations might have been for this woman, right? Maybe it was that there would be this rich widow who was going to be prepared to provide for him, right? Because God said, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. And I loved a conversation I just had with someone about this this morning. We don't really know what that command looked like to the widow. Maybe she heard it. Maybe she didn't. Maybe this was God moving silently inside of her heart. We don't know. But it looks like at this moment that this widow is entirely unaware of what's about to happen. This poor, desperate widow about ready to die, gathering a few sticks for her last meal to feed her and her son before they give up. This is how God's going to provide? That seems unlikely. And notice how he doesn't get there and she says, Ah, yes, Elijah, the Lord told me you'd come. Here's some food, right? No, that's not what's happening. And so I really can't imagine what's going through Elijah's head. What would be going through your head after you traveled almost 100 miles to this foreign land expecting God to provide for you the way that he said, and this is what you encounter? This seems like a scary moment. And so my question is, what's our response when God's provision doesn't line up with what we expect it to look like or how it has in the past? See, because God had just prepared for him at Kareth Brook. He, the birds fed him every day, right? Again, the raven sounded more dependable in this moment, right? And so what happens? What's our response when that provision doesn't line up with what we expect? And you might be dealing with a lot of this right now as you think about that. I certainly am. Some of our teams are, right? And it's not just sustenance. It's not about food and water. It's about all sorts of things like, God, how are you going to provide here? This isn't lining up with what we thought it was going to look like. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? This is what we think is best. 
it's really hard to trust God when I think that I know what's best. And God's like, oh, you're so cute, Justin. You think you know what's best for you. Oh, Dennis, you're so cute. You think you know what's, what's best, right? Uh, like if I just tug on God's arm hard enough, like, come on, God, just move. Just do this thing. This is what's going to be best. Recognizing that that's not how God works, that he's not going to cater to my expectations. And that's funny when we think about that. But guys, I think that's one of the biggest things that can make or break our faith in who God is. Because when we think that we know what's best for us and God doesn't uh, cater to that, we tend to start shaking our fists at him and say, why aren't you providing for me? Why aren't you doing this when really he is and we're completely missing it? The thing is, church, we don't know what we need. You and I have been around long enough to know. Some of us have been here, what, measly 70, 80 years. Some of us a lot younger than that. We think that we know what we need compared to the God who created the universe and holds everything in his hands. I think that he knows what he's doing. And I think that it's time we start trusting him in his provision. And by doing that, we have, we have to shake our warped views about what God's provision looks like, Crosspoint. Because the thing about provision, provision is not God giving you everything that you want, everything that you ask for. God's provision is actually God giving you what he knows is best for you. Provision is not God giving you everything that you ask for, but God giving you everything that he knows that you need because he knows better and we don't, right? Um, and and we, we, we tend to do this sometimes, right? We think that we can put God in a box uh, and calculate and measure his ways, right? You ever tried doing that and realize that's just not how he works, right? All of your plans, the things that you thought your bet were best, and then later down the road, you're like, wow, what was I thinking? Thank God that he knew, thank God that he knew what he was doing and not me. And that kind of leads us to uh, our next point, because when we look in front of us right now in this story, this is like one of those classic stories of there's no way God can do this. And that's the best part about this story, Crosspoint. It leads us to our next point. You can write this down on your note sheet. It's that God loves using the unlikely. God loves using the unlikely. What you and I tend to think God can't use, he says, bet. Watch and see. And why? Why does God love using the unlikely? Well, there's a couple reasons. One of the first ones that I think is that he uses unlikely situations and unlikely people to help us realize that it's not about us. Like I said, we can't measure or calculate God's ways. You can't put him in a box and expect him to operate the way you want to. That's not how God works. The second reason I think he also uses the unlikely situations to help us realize how awesome he is, not how awesome we are. <laughs> we uh, just got back from our summer camp with our middle school and high school students, and we took time to, yes, it was fantastic. You can, pray, you can shout for that. That was good stuff, man. But we took some time to go through the story of Jericho. You remember Jericho, right? Joshua leads the Israelites to march around the walls for seven days, right? And on the seventh day, after the seventh time they walked around, the walls collapse, and God gives them Jericho. Um, we took some time to talk about what happened right before they arrived at Jericho. And Joshua and the Israelites encounter this figure. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And it's God. And he says, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And we took some time to talk about what that looks like. God's on team God, not on team Justin. 
not on Team Zeke, not on Team Riley. He's not on your team. And you know what, church? That's the best news for you and I. Because, and I love how Steve said this the other month. He said that God doesn't endorse any of us. He doesn't endorse me. He doesn't endorse you. He doesn't endorse any of us fools. God endorses God. And when God's on team God, that's the best news because that means that we get all the provision from him and that it's not dependent on us. Because when it's dependent on us, we're in a world of trouble because I'm not that great. But when I recognize how awesome God is and that he's going to provide because of who he is, not because of who I am. See, when I think that we start to understand that church, it's going to help us greatly. And maybe you've found yourself thinking otherwise. I was thinking about this like, man, God, God couldn't possibly provide for me. Like, oh, I really messed up that thing. There's no way God's going to, you know, how could God care about me? How could God care about someone like me? How is he going to provide, right? Like thinking all those thoughts, all those whispers and lies that float in the back of our minds sometimes. But when we recognize <laughs> how awesome he is, I, I love what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 6. I want to flip there. You can flip there with me. It's one verse. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. This is how Jesus puts it. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Cross point. Do you recognize how much value you hold because of who God is, not because of who you are? Do you recognize how deeply he cares for you? Every detail of your life, all of it? Because what happens when we start to understand and believe that fundamental truth, that we hold value in God's eyes, that's when I think that our faith can really start to grow some serious roots, some really deep roots. We have to understand that truth. God loves using the unlikely for these reasons. And, and again, I, was, I mentioned it's not just about sustenance. That's not what's, certainly that's what's happening here in the story, but God's always doing something more. There's, there's more undertones of what's going on, right? And so for Elijah, right here in this moment, it's God in a sense almost saying, Elijah, I took care of you at Kareth Brook. Do you trust that I'll provide for you as you travel 100 miles to a foreign land? Do you trust that I could use your enemies to provide? For the woman, what's about to happen is she's about to gamble her last meal away. Would you trust me in your time of desperation, in your last meal? Could you do that? Because that's a big step of faith. And so my question for us, for you guys, is what's God, what is God calling you to trust him with? Maybe it is a physiological need. Maybe it is sustenance. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your job. For you parents, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a broken relationship right now. What is God calling you to trust him with? And so that's going to be the next point on our sheet here. I want to encourage you to write something down, whatever that is, because you might have it right there in the front of your mind. Do I trust God with my blank? Whatever that is. And that you'd ask yourself that today, Crosspoint. Do I trust God with whatever that is? So back to our story now. I want to read verses, start, pick it back up in verse 13, right? And so, again, Elijah has confronted the woman, and she says, we're about to die. Verse 13. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you've just said, but make a little bread for me first. 
Then use what's left to prepare, prepare a meal for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be enough flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. And that's such a, this is such a cool part that we have going on, but there's a weird thing that just kind of popped up. And the question is, why is God telling the widow to feed Elijah first? That seems a little pretentious, right? That seems a little selfish. Like you come into the picture and this woman in her time of desperation, getting ready to die, and you say, feed me first. What's that about? There's a lot of things that we can unpack from there, but but what I love with this, what I had for you, Crosspoint, is that I think that this is a really clear picture of what authentic faith looks like. That even when things are uncertain, even when you're scared, even when that doesn't make any sense at all, that God calls us to have faith. And I love what Elijah says, don't be afraid. You know how many times that phrase is used in the Bible? Over a hundred. Over a hundred times God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why? Because I think that he recognizes how prone we are to that fear sometimes, that we are certainly scared. But even in the face of that fear and uncertainty, would you trust God enough to move? Would you trust God enough to do that? And so we, we see that the, in verse 15 there, right? So she does what Elijah says, and then it says that there's always enough, right? There's always enough provision. They have this oil, they have this flour, and they eat for many days, and it's this fantastic miracle. But it's an interesting miracle, because it's not like this really big, crazy miracle. Recognize that she didn't get like a lifetime supply of food. They didn't bring it, cart in like all these oils and drugs for her, right? It says that, I want to read it again, verse 15, or sorry, 16. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers. That makes it seem like there was always just enough left every single day for them to eat. And what I love about that picture for us, church, is I think that that's a call to continuous faith. Continuous faith. And so level with me here. If you had an abundance of something, don't you think it would be easy to say, I don't need God anymore. I've got everything that I need. Why would I need to rely on him? Why would I need to trust in him? Why would I need to have faith? I've got all the olive oil and flour right here. There's no need for me to trust him. And then think about this. Maybe the reason that God hasn't given you an abundance of whatever that thing is that you've been asking for lately might be the very thing that's keeping you close to him. Maybe the reason you haven't gotten an abundance of whatever that is is the very thing that you need to stay close to him, to continuously trust in who he is. And then we pick up the story in verse 17. I want to read verse 17 for you. I'm not going to read the rest of it again. I've got some more things that I want to talk about. encourage you to read those, this last part. But it, it takes a weird turn, right? We have this super cool miracle. Everyone seems pretty happy. And then verse 17. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Like, what a weird turn that we just took here. How do we go from God's provision to this tragedy? 
What's happening here? Why would God do something like this? And I love what Elijah says a few verses later. He says, Oh Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? Things just got really personal, really quick. And I want to paraphrase the rest of the story here for you. What happens is that her son is revived that Elijah says, give me your son, and he takes him up into an upper room, and, and he lays across her son and starts pleading to God on her and his behalf. And then her son's brought back to life, and in verse 24, I love what she says as the story wraps up. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. And so when we think about this, right, the first story, the provision and the miracle, and then this story, the, the miracle of her son being back to, back to life, it seems a little odd that the woman's faith wasn't solidified during the first part of the miracle. Would you agree? Like, you just saw God move in a mighty way. Why now do you know for sure that Elijah is a man of God, that God truly speaks through him? What's going on there? And I think that we can relate to this a lot, Crosspoint. We, uh, we hear stories all the time of God moving in other people's lives around us, right? We hear stories of miracles like, wow, God is so good, right? But then we still have this doubt inside of us sometimes, right? Or heck, we even read all about those kinds of stories in here where God's promise never fails, where he always comes through for his people, right? Over and over and over again, it's in here. But there's still something that holds us back from trusting God wholeheartedly. And that's kind of what happened here. And I think maybe one of the reasons why her faith wasn't solidified is because it was her last meal anyway. Why not? We're about to die. Go ahead. See what your God can do with this. Right? I'll gamble that away. So maybe that's what's going on. I mean, I was thinking of all about this. Maybe there's some conspiracy, right? Maybe someone was bringing in a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of flour every day, like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe that could have been a miracle, but maybe it could have been something else. Maybe it's coincidence, right? There's always some doubt floating around there. But sometimes it's until things become deeply personal for us that we move from a place of maybe trusting God a little bit to trusting him wholeheartedly. And the thing is, church, there are some things that are easier to trust God with than others. There are some things to trust him, easier to trust him with than others. And that leads us to the last point that you guys can write down on your note sheet today. It's the desperate times call for desperate faith. Desperate times call for desperate, desperate faith. Maybe you've got that one thing right now on the front of your mind that's really hard to trust him with. I know what mine is. It was my wife and I's infertility struggles when we were newlyweds. Well, not newlyweds. I mean, I guess two years you can classify that as newlyweds still, for those of you that have been married for a long time. But knowing that my wife and I wanted to start a family, that her and I both wanted to be parents more than anything in this world, and we tried for two years and then realized we weren't getting anywhere until we went to the doctors and they said, there's not a chance that you're going to conceive naturally. Or they said, there's less than a 1% chance. That's, that was the doctor's exact words. Okay, so what's going on here, God? You, you know that this is what we want. This is what we expect. Why are you not providing? 
Why can't we do this? Okay, so let's, let's weigh out our options. Let's try some things. So starting IVF. Some of you are probably familiar with IVF in vitro. Most of you probably don't know how much that costs. It's a lot. I'll just leave it at that. It's a lot. So we dump our house savings into trying to start our family because it's something that we so desperately want, something that's so deeply personal to us. And then the first time we are about to try, the doctors say, don't worry about a thing. You guys are young. You're healthy. We're like 22 at this point. They're like, you're good. You got it, right? And so we transfer our embryos. Neither of them stick. It didn't work. Okay, here we are again. God, what's going on? Why are you not providing? All of those questions that start floating around in your head. We've, we've done everything that we can. We've, we've served you what's going on here, right? So, okay, let's try again. $5,000 later because you have to pay more to keep trying to do it, right? And we get pregnant. But 20 weeks later, we use a, lose our first daughter in the womb. Stillbirth. And that, that was when it got deeply personal. God, why would you take our daughter from us? What are you doing? Lord, we've served you. We jumped into youth ministry as soon as we graduated high school. We've done everything that we've can. we can. We love you. We've served you. Why would you not provide for us? Starting to shake our fists at him, wondering why he's not giving us the things that we desire, what we think that we need, what we, how we expect him to provide. Having to trust God with all of that, when it would have been a lot easier to just give up and say, no thanks, that's not a God that I want to serve, and completely miss the ways that he was trying to provide for us in those times. And I love her response, the widow's response at the end here. Now I know for sure. Now I know for sure. And the thing is, Crosspoint, whatever your story is for that story of our infertility, we have four beautiful children. Now my oldest daughter is about to be five years old here in August. And so praise God for the ways that he's moved and for the ways that he's provided. But the way that he provided was not giving me my daughter back. I didn't get her back. That's what I thought that I needed. That's what I wanted more than anything else in the world. But the ways that God provided looked entirely different from that. And in those moments, it was, it was easy to miss and hard to spot what he was doing. But looking back, I can say, now I know without a doubt, now I know for sure that you are the God who provides because of everything else that he did in the middle of those painful and, and doubtful circumstances, all the ways that he's provided for my wife and I to where now my faith I feel unwavering. I'm like, bring it on. What else can you throw at us? God is good. He will always provide. There's nothing else that you can throw at us, world. There's nothing else that the enemy can hit us with that will shake us. And so praise God for the ways that he's provided in those times of pain and doubt. My question for you today, do you trust that God will provide in the unlikely situations in your life? Do you trust that he will provide when it gets deeply personal for you? Do you trust that he will provide even when it hurts? Do you trust that he'll provide even when you don't understand sometimes? Because I'm sorry, Crosspoint, sometimes we won't understand. I'll never understand why my daughter had to pass away. I, I wish that I had a better answer for you there, but I don't. Sometimes we don't understand because our scope is so limited that we can't always see what God's trying to do 
and all the ways that he's trying to work out good in the midst of an evil and chaotic and uncertain world. We just won't understand sometimes. But I want to encourage you this morning, keep your eyes on what he's trying to do. Don't miss it. When you feel that urge to start shaking your fist at him and saying, you are not providing for us, be careful. Be watchful. Try to see what it, what it is that he's trying to do. And that maybe we could start to develop this kind of desperate faith that leads us to trusting him wholeheartedly. Our worship team is going to start making their way up here. And as they're coming up, I want you guys to stick with me for a second because there's something else that's going on here in this story. And I kind of already alluded to it at the beginning, but it's not just about sustenance. Surely the story does revolve around food and water, and then we get this picture of a deeply personal loss and another miracle in regards to the widow's son. And I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with your Bibles or how much you've read, but if you've read through some things, you start to realize that there's something going on underneath the stories that you're reading. There's some underlying tone about something that God's trying to do, something that he's trying to show us about who he is. And one of the best parts about this story, church, the question is why would he use a Gentile, desperate, poor widow to provide for Elijah? Well, what we see there is that this is a foreshadow of God's extension of his grace to all people, church. Even the people that have no place being used, right? Because in Elijah's head, with the, with the culture wars that are going on here, I'm sure that some people would have said she has no business being used by God. This widow has no business being involved in, the, in, in Yahweh God's kingdom. There's no way. But God's saying, no, don't miss what I'm doing. He's showing us what happens. And you know what eventually that led up to, church? That's you and I sitting in this room today that we're so undeserving of that grace that God provided. And I love the way that this story, that first story of the oil and flour wrapped up and said, there was always enough flour and oil. There was always enough. And yeah, that's about sustenance and food, but it's not just about sustenance, but that's about salvation, church. And so for us today, what we need to recognize is that there's always enough mercy because of who God is. There is always enough love for you because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on that cross for you, that those jars will never run dry. His love and his mercy will never end. I love what Lamentations chapter 3, I think it's verse 22 says, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you hold enough value in God's eyes that his love and his mercy will never cease for you, church? Those jars will never run dry. And the reason being is because 2,000 years ago, God loved the world. He loved you and I so much that he stepped off of his throne and came to live among us, living a life that all of us have lived from birth up until death, enduring and suffering, temptation, all of it. And he lived a perfect life, but died a criminal's death on a cross. And as excruciating as that story is, and we're probably familiar with that, not only did he die on a cross, but he went to bear the punishment and wrath of God for your sin and for my sin for all time so that you and I would never have to. And that's the reason that those jars will never run dry, church. 
That's the reason that you can sit here and trust that wholeheartedly today, that his love will never end for you. Do you believe that? So we're going to sing some songs today uh, to Jesus and about Jesus for who he is and everything that he's done and the ways that he's provided for us, the ways that he'll continue to provide for us. Our prayer team is going to be in the back of the house. I encourage you to go back there and pray with them. If you walked in here carrying something today, maybe it's that thing that you're having a really hard time trusting God with this morning. Go pray with them. It's one of the most effective weapons for you. Go talk to them about that. We invite you to the four corners of the room with us to take that communion where we take that piece of bread that represents Jesus being broken on that cross for us. And that little cup of juice that solidified the covenant that he made with you and I to say, there will always be enough love and mercy for you because of what he did. And so Jesus, we love you and we praise you in this place today. We, we give you this time. I ask that you would do whatever work it is that you need to do inside of hearts and minds right now. Lord, help us to move to a place where we can start to trust you wholeheartedly with everything that we have, Lord, even in the most uncertain and unlikely situations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com. Jesus, you